0: Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. I am all in favor of Christian charity and brotherhood and all that but I think there's a limit to the sharing and Micah has shared his cold with me so if I sound nasally tonight or if I sniffle a lot tonight I was having quite a sneezing fit just before I got here at the moment the Hall's uh, mentholyptus is keeping that at bay perhaps it will be a shorter than usual night or, or maybe not You can turn to Proverbs chapter 14. We got as far as verse 12 last week. And we used verse 12 as sort of a theme in the things that we read last week. Verse 12 says, There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end, the end of that way that seems right to a man, the end of it is the way of death. As we continue through this chapter... Solomon is going to continue along that theme and he's going to bring it up again in chapter 16. He's going to quote that verbatim. So that is kind of the large theme, but now as we continue the second half of this chapter, we're going to see another theme as similar as we've seen foolish people speak too much and wise people keep their mouth quiet. We're going to see tonight that part of their foolishness is being quick-tempered. Solomon's going to bring it up a couple of different times in a couple of different ways and say that fools are quick to get angry. And that part of wisdom is having self-control, not letting your emotions fly off, not letting your anger fly off. Anybody in here want to admit that they are quick-tempered? Okay. Wow. Those hands went up slightly too quick. I didn't even have time to get the joke out, which was, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand because you might get mad about it. So that is thematically part of what we're going to look at tonight. Again, the fear of the Lord concept is going to come up so that we see that that is part of what it is to be wise. We're going to see Solomon repeat that a couple of times, and he's going to talk about what it is to sin against a neighbor and what it is to sin against the poor, what it is to look down on people. So, starting from verse 12, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. You may recall... Last week, as we were finishing our lesson, we read verse 10, which says, The heart knows its own bitterness, and a stranger does not share in the joy of that heart. And I said to you that essentially what Solomon is getting at here is that nobody really knows what it's like to be anybody. The heart of the individual is the only one that knows the depth of the bitterness that that heart contains. Well, verse 13 is going to follow along that same kind of thinking because verse verse 13 says, i got to get this lozenge out of my mouth. It's like doing ventriloquism. I'm talking and I'm eating a lozenge. Oh, that's good. Chewing a lozenge, that's even better. Verse 13 says, even in laughter... The heart may be in pain. That's a basic reality of human life. There are certain pains, certain difficulties that we bump into in this lifetime that we carry with us for the rest of our lives. And just because we may laugh, and Solomon is an advocate for laughter, he says that a merry heart is good, like a medicine. He's going to say that it's good to be happy, to be merry, to laugh, and yet Even if that laughter is apparent on the outside, there can still be some deep, intrinsic pain in the heart. And only the heart knows that pain, as he has already told us. The heart alone knows its own bitterness. So even though you may see somebody laughing, you can't really read a book by its cover, Mm. to coin a phrase. If you see somebody who seems happy on the outside, if you see somebody who seems joyous on the outside, that doesn't mean that there is no pain in their life. That doesn't mean that there's no pain in their heart. And even though they are laughing, the pain still exists. And the end of their joy, he says, may be grief. Because that pain that's in their heart doesn't go away. Here, I'll give you a quick example. If you've ever spoken to anybody who has ever, let's say, lost a child in their lifetime, that's a pain that they walk around with for the rest of their lives. I've known people who have adopted what I refer to as the 100-yard stare, where they're just looking out into the distance all the time. They never seem to be connecting with anybody. And you can sit and have a conversation with them, and they might even joke. But in the end, they go back to the 100-yard stare, because whatever the pain is that they're carrying, it's always with them. So Solomon states that it's a reality of the human condition that sometimes life can be hard, life can be painful, life can be difficult, and nobody on the outside knows the bitterness of anybody else's heart. Strangers don't share in the joy that that heart has either because really every individual knows what's going on inside themselves better than anybody else does because they alone know what it is that they really are going through. Even in laughter, the heart may be in pain and the end of joy may be grief. Verse 14 says, The backslider in heart... What that phrase probably means is the unbeliever, somebody who does not have any faith, any confidence in their heart. Usually, when you see the phrase backslider in the Old Testament, that's what it's referring to someone who has slidden away, slidden back from the faith. The backslider in heart will have his fill of his own ways, and a good man will be satisfied with his. Okay, now the words be satisfied in the NASB are added by the translator. In other words, the contrast is a backslider in heart will be filled with his own way, and a good man will be filled with his own way. So this we're going to see said a couple of different ways tonight, that you kind of are what you are. And I know I said that a couple of weeks ago. It seems to be something that Solomon keeps going back to, If you are a backslider, if you are a cynic, if you are an unbeliever, if you are a fool, if you are always argumentative toward the things of God, then ultimately you're going to end up with your own foolishness, your own pride, your own self-satisfaction. Remember again, the theme tonight is there is a way that seems right to men. And so at some point, Solomon seems to be saying here, you know, God is going to let you have whatever it is you desire in this life. If your desire is to be godless and to be cynical and to be argumentative and to be a backslider from the faith, God is going to let you be that and you're going to be full of yourself. And the end result of that is going to be judgment before God. But the good man will be full of his or will be satisfied with his. It's in contrast to the backslider in heart who will be full of his own ways. The good man, the upright man, the righteous man is going to be full or satisfied with his ways. So the contrast is the way of the fool and the way of the wise again. The way of the good, the way of the righteous versus the way of the backslider in heart. The backslider in heart is going to end up getting exactly what he deserves and exactly what he wanted. What was the name of the preacher who was confronted by uh, an unbeliever who came up and said, uh, you know, I don't believe your God. I don't believe anything you preach. In fact, uh, I'd be perfectly happy to die and go to hell. And the preacher immediately dropped into prayer and said, please, God, give this man exactly what he wants. And the man said, no, 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 don't pray that. And he said, that's what you said you want. Well, this proverb is essentially saying that you're going to be full of whatever it is that you desire. If you don't desire the things of God, that's exactly what your life is going to be full of. Mm -hmm. Did you have a hand up a minute ago? The New King James Version even has it translated that the good man will be satisfied from above. Narrowing it not just his own way, but God's way That righteousness is going to fill him. It's going to satisfy him. Mm -hmm. So then along the same lines, verse 15 says, the naive, which is going to be contrasted with the prudent, so that means the thinking person versus the unthinking person, the naive believes everything. And if that weren't true, we wouldn't have the modern press. Mm. Oh, okay. I'll let that go. We'll just keep moving. The unthinking person, the naive person, is going to believe everything. The reason that Solomon uses that phrase is so that he can contrast it with the prudent man who considers his steps. He considers his way. He considers his walk. Last week, I said to you, Uh, That when I hit 50, I learned to think. And then I explained it as I recognized that for all of my previous life, I had always been reacting to life. Life comes at you fast. I never seemed to be able to get ahead of it. And I was constantly reacting to whatever happened to me. And that at 50, I finally learned to just slow down, think about what I was doing, take consideration of my own ways, and ask myself whether the things I was doing made any sense. And I think that's what Solomon is getting at here when he says a prudent man considers his steps, considers his way. Think about what you're doing. When you find yourself in the middle of doing anything, think about, does this make sense? Why am I doing this? Is this advancing me in this life and in the life to come? Is this a well-considered thing that I'm doing? Or am I yet again just becoming a victim of my own desires, passions, and foolishness? The naive, the foolish, are going to believe just everything. And as a consequence, they're not really going to stand for anything. But prudent men, thinking people... Consider his steps. And I think, again, that kind of falls under the heading of there is a way that seems right to a man. And the way of that is destruction. The naive man believes everything. That's his way. And the end result of that is going to be his destruction. So a prudent man, a wise man, a thinking man considers his steps. He thinks about his way. He thinks about how his life is progressing And whether he is walking in the ways of wisdom or the ways of foolishness. Which takes us to verse 16. A wise man is cautious. A wise man is careful. And he turns away from evil. Nine times out of ten, when people get caught up in some evil activity... They knew what the activity was, and they knew where the activity was, and they knew the activity was not good for them, but they went anyway. The example that I use frequently is the person who drinks too much knows where the trouble is. The trouble's in the bottle. Where's the bottle? It's in the bar. Okay, well, if you go into the bar, what is the likelihood that you're going to drink more? Pretty darn good, because that's where the trouble is. And most people who drink too much know it's generally not good for them. And yet they continue to go and do it. And so Solomon says, a wise man is going to be careful, think about his way, and turn away from that evil. Once he recognizes it and understands it as an evil, as something that is drawing him away from God, as something that is not a prudent way to walk out his life then a wise man will turn away from it. In our society these days, there are a lot of excuses for the evil things that people do. They like to self-justify and they like to make up excuses for why they do it. Gee, I would quit, but I have a, uh, an addiction or I have a disease or I have a. I know a fellow who has been a crack addict for 30 years who has just recently, finally, gotten clean and sober. Life now, as you hear him talk about it, is vastly, vastly improved because he can actually look people in the eye and people don't run from him and they're not scared and hiding from him and everything else. And he's able to be honest with people because if a crack addict is talking to you, he's lying. But all the time that he was the crack addict, he would tell you he couldn't help it. If it were true all this time that he couldn't help it, then he wouldn't have ever gotten well. And he did get well, which meant he could help it. What he had to do was get committed enough to help it. What he had to do was finally decide, that's it. I'm done with this. I'm walking away from this evil, and I'm going to do whatever it takes because this costs me too much. And so a wise person, a smart man, thinks He's cautious, he's careful, and he turns away from evil. And by contrast, but a fool is arrogant. That means self-willed, full of himself. And a foolish, self-willed person, rather than being careful, is careless. So he's going to make his excuses. And he's going to say why it is that he does the things he does. And he's going to say, don't you tell me I know exactly what I'm doing. Because he's self-willed. He's arrogant. He's full of himself. And as a consequence, he can't be instructed. He won't listen when you tell him what the ways of the Lord or the ways of wisdom actually are. So the contrast is between the wise and the fool again, and a wise man is careful, he's thinking, he's cautious, and when he sees the evil in his life, because he's prudent and considers his own steps, he's going to turn away from the evil that this life offers. But a fool is going to be self-willed, is going to be arrogant, and is going to be careless, which means he's just going to do what he wants to do, and can't nobody tell him nothing. (laughs) Verse 17 then gets into what I mentioned earlier, part of what it is to be foolish is to be quick-tempered. A quick-tempered man acts foolishly. Now, he may be saying that it is foolish to be quick-tempered, but he may also be saying that by virtue of the fact that you are quick-tempered, you're going to end up being foolish, a quick-tempered person who is quick to say the wrong thing or to call somebody else down or to yell at someone or to get angry at somebody. At some point, they're going to come across as not likable, not friendly. Nobody wants to kind of be around them. I'm sorry to say that out loud for the few people who did raise their hands earlier. But it is part of folly, part of foolishness, according to what Solomon has written here, to be quick-tempered And a man of evil devices, he says, is hated. So what I just said about quick-tempered people ultimately not being likable, not being friendly, not attracting people, Solomon said the same thing, because he is a man of evil devices, evil thoughts, evil schemes. He's thinking of ways that he can trip people up, that he can hurt other people. And ultimately, other people are going to put him off. Other people are going to hate that kind of person. And I think the way that Solomon has laid out this proverb starts with a temper, starts with being quick-tempered, starts with being too quick to let everybody feel your wrath. The end result of that is that you start being uh, evil in your plans and your plots and your devices, and you end up being hated. Look forward to verse 29 for a moment, because Solomon is going to... Kind of contrast that now in verse 29. And he says, but he who is slow to anger has great understanding. So slow to anger is wisdom. But he who is quick tempered exalts folly. So he who is quick tempered is demonstrating that he is foolish. That is part of what it is to be foolish, is to just fire off your temper quickly at people. Notice, by the way, that the two phrases, quick-tempered and slow to anger, both include a certain amount of anger. Because human beings do get angry. There is a place for righteous indignation. We're told in the New Testament, be angry but sin not. So sometimes it is appropriate, there are things that get to us and that make us angry But if we fire off quickly about it, then we're more likely to do more damage to make the situation worse. And so that is a foolish way of being. It's true that people can sometimes grow in their anger, but it's good to be slow in growing in your anger. So why would that be? Why is it better to be slow in anger instead of quick to anger? Because along that process, that slower process, you have time to, what's that word? Think. You have have time to think about what happened to you. You have time to think about whether what you're about to say is appropriate. You're able to Consider your own way. Is what I'm about to demonstrate going to help the cause, or is it going to hurt the cause? Am I devising evil schemes? Am I just setting out to hurt somebody else because I got upset, and everybody deserves to feel my wrath now? If you're slow to anger, he says, that shows great understanding because it also gives you the opportunity to think. Psychologists will tell you that when you get upset, That you should first count to ten. And what does that process of counting to ten do for you? It just gives you time to slow down and think. It's just a way of before you mouth off. Before you're quick to hurt somebody. Or quick to, to be angry at somebody. It's a way to just slow down. Consider your own way. And not be immediate in the way that you react. So he who is slow then to anger might actually anger at some point. He might have some righteous case to make, but he's going to think about it along the way and consider whether his anger makes any sense. The person who does that has great understanding, but he who is quick-tempered exalts folly. So back at verse 17, a quick-tempered man acts foolishly. And a man of evil devices ends up hated. So then a moment ago, he was talking about the naive. In verse 15, the naive believe everything. They accept everything. They don't really consider things the way the prudent man would. They just kind of accept things at face value without giving any thought to them. Verse 18 talks again about the naive and says that the naive inherit folly but the prudent are crowned with knowledge. Really, really interesting contrast here on many different levels. First off, the naive inherit folly. It's not just that they're foolish within themselves. It's something that comes to them naturally. They've inherited it the same way that you might say someone inherited from their parents after their parents passed in other words, this is something that's passed down to them. Apparently, it's something that they got from the people they hang around with, or from family, or from... so. They, because they are naive, what they end up with is folly, that they just inherit. They haven't thought it through. They haven't given it any consideration. It's just theirs by inheritance. But the contrast is... The prudent are crowned with knowledge. Now, never forget who it is that's saying this. It's Solomon who's saying it, and he is king. And he knows what it is to be crowned. And he knows what it is to crown someone. To crown somebody is an act of honoring them. It's something that you're bestowing on them. So the prudent, he says, the wise, the thinking people, are then bestowed with The honor of knowledge, which I think is really interesting when contrasted with the unthinking just end up with inherited foolishness. But the wise person, the prudent person, the thinking person who considers his way is going to gain more and more knowledge. And that knowledge is put on him like a crown It's bestowed on him. He's going to say that same thing later on. That same language is going to be used in just a few verses in verse 24 when he says the crown of the wise is their riches. In other words, if you're wise and if you have been crowned with wisdom and understanding, that is your wealth. Now, it may result in you getting material wealth here in this lifetime. But even if you don't accumulate wealth here on the planet, what you have got is that crown of wisdom, and that becomes your wealth in this lifetime. The second half of verse 24, and I wasn't going to talk about it till we finally got to it, but what the heck, we're here. But the folly of fools is foolishness. Almost sounds like a tautology, doesn't it? The folly, the word folly, and the word foolishness are the same word in the Hebrew. The folly of fools is folly, or the foolishness of fools is foolishness. It can be read either way. But it is common in the Bible to repeat words for emphasis, like verily, verily, or like we saw just this past Sunday where Paul made a statement and then made it again because he wanted to make sure that you understood it. We still do that to this very day. In fact, it's sort of natural. uh, Kids, when they're trying to get their mother's attention, mom, 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 because that emphasis is what's going to get your attention. If I'm trying to get someone's attention, I might go, come here, come here, come here, come here, come here, because I'm emphasizing what I'm saying by the repetition. I think that's what Solomon's getting at here is that he's not creating a tautology. What he's actually doing is repeating the word for emphasis. Fools exercise folly, and that is foolish. I'll say it a couple of different ways until you you, uh, kind of grasp it. The folly of fools is foolishness, which means... If you see somebody doing foolishness, that is a fool, but they're doing the foolishness because folly is from fools. Does that make any sense? Or the folly of fools is foolishness. It is foolish to be full of folly. If you're full of folly, that makes you a fool, but that's what foolishness is. You getting it? you're a fool. you speaking to me. No. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. I I sort of sound foolish saying this repeatedly. But I think that's what Solomon was doing. He was doing it for emphasis that the, the folly of fools is actually foolishness. The very fact that fools act foolishly is foolishness. So it's extra emphasis on how foolish they act. And that stands in contrast to the crown The bestowing, the honor of wisdom is wealth, is riches. In this lifetime, if you understand things, if you have the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom, if you understand the things that this whole world seems to misunderstand or hold down in their unrighteousness, if you get that, then what do you really need in terms of this world's wealth? This world's wealth won't improve Your standing before God, one iota. Therefore, real understanding, real wisdom is your riches. That is your wealth. And the folly of fools is foolishness. So let's go back to verse 18, where it says the naive inherit folly. In other words, the unthinking inherit foolishness. So the activity of a fool is foolishness, which is foolishness. The naive inherit folly, but the prudent, the thinking, the wise are crowned with knowledge. Verse 19 then, the evil, I think he's talking ultimately here, the evil will bow down before the good. Perhaps he's talking From the position of a civil magistrate here, since he is the judge in Israel, that the evil people are going to be judged and will ultimately bow down before the good. But the second half of the verse says, and the wicked are going to bow down at the gates of the righteous. So he may be talking in an ultimate sense that righteousness and good will triumph. Or he may be saying... That in the lifetime of evil and wicked people, they should be prepared to bow down before the good and at the gates of the righteous because that's where they're going to end up. They're not going to be rewarded for their foolishness and their evil and their wickedness. They're ultimately going to have to bow before the good because the good and the righteous are the people who are going to get promoted and who are going to have greater influence in this world. That might be what Solomon's getting at. What we know for sure is good wins, evil loses, mm. and evil will bow down before the good. Verse 20, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. We just touched on it because it's, uh, it says, the poor are hated even by his neighbor. And when we spoke about this last week, I broke into a Billie Holiday song. There, now you all remember. Oh, okay. He who despises his neighbor, says verse 21, sins. So let's put these two together. The poor is hated by his neighbor because he's poor. Probably because there's no benefit personally. They can't do anything for me. I'm not going to get anything back out of them. Therefore, they're going to be rejected. They're going to be hated simply because they are poor. And the inverse of that in verse 20 is, but those who love the rich are many. That's a reality that still exists today. If you've got money, you've got lots of friends. Because they all know that you can do something for them. You can help them. You throw better parties. You... You've got bigger and better stuff, and so you're going to end up with lots of friends coming around just because you're rich. So this is an unfairness that he is mentioning in this world, that the poor end up hated even by his own neighbor, the one who lives right next to him, and those who love the rich are very many people. But verse 21, and I think this is strategically placed, says, he who despises his neighbor sins. So the poor are hated even by his neighbor, but the neighbor who hates him is sinning in hating him because it is a sin to look down on somebody simply because they are poor. Look at verse 31 of this same chapter for a moment. We'll get a little more insight into this concept. Verse 31 says, he who oppresses the poor reproaches his maker Okay now we have some idea why Solomon would say that if you hate the poor you're sinning against your neighbor. The shape, the form that that sin takes is that if you oppress the poor that is a reproach to your maker because your maker God himself is kind, we just read that, is giving and gives his son and his rain and food to the to the just and the unjust he is patient, he's kind, long-suffering so we are called to be the same way and if we are supposed to be the people that represent God and yet we're hateful toward people simply because they are poor or we're oppressing people simply because they're poor and they can't do anything about it so we're oppressing them because we can, then that is a reproach against God that is to say that God himself would act that way because we're representing God that way so it is a sin against God who has told us how to be when we are mean oppressive unkind to the poor and then he says the end of verse 31 but he who is gracious to the needy honors God and that is a theme that runs all the way through the Bible being kind to people who are lesser than you. Being kind to people who don't have as much as you. Being gracious to people is a way to honor God. And to not do that is to show God, to demonstrate God in a bad light. Verse 21, he who despises his neighbor sins, but happy is he who is gracious To the poor, over here we read that he who is gracious to the needy honors God. I think that's the way in which that person ends up happy or ends up blessed. They end up in that condition because they're gracious to the poor. So you put those three verses together and it's pretty obvious. To oppress people just because you can get away with it because they're poor and they can't do anything back to you, uh, and you're willing to oppress them simply because they don't benefit you in any way, that is sin. That is a reproach to God. But to be gracious to them, to be giving to them, to be kind to people who you can't get anything back from, there's no benefit to you, you're doing it for one reason, you're doing it to demonstrate the kindness, the grace of God, the generosity of God. And look, if God has been good to you, then he is expecting that you're going to be good to other people. Yes. And the relationship of the poor person can't do anything for you, therefore you oppress him. Well, what did you ever do for God? You can't do anything for God, and yet he was kind and gracious to you. Same relationship, so then you be kind and gracious to the poor and to the needy and to people who cannot benefit you. In that way, you're representing God well. Verse 22. Will they not go astray who devise evil? People who are looking to get into trouble, people who are constructing evil plans are ultimately going to go astray. Solomon, by the way, may have even gotten this idea from his father David Somebody look up Psalm 58, 3, and you're going to hear something very similar. David talks about how the evil go astray, and he's going to say they go astray right from the womb, right from the beginning. And that go astray terminology here means that they never quite get on the right path. They don't follow in the ways of wisdom. They don't follow after the fear of the Lord. They're constantly turning away from the wisdom of this life that would uh, cause them to do right and to be gracious to people. And so they go astray because they're busy devising evil. Who has Psalm 58.3? You got that, Steve? Why don't you read it? The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. They go estranged from birth, speaking lies, as soon as they come out of the womb. So David and Solomon are agreeing that those who are evil, those that are wicked, those that devise evil plans, can't ever really get on that straight and narrow because they're always going to go astray because they're evil, right from the womb. Second half of verse 22 says, but kindness And truth will be to those, and he uses the same word, those who devise good. So devise good or devise evil, that's the contrast. Plan to do evil or plan to do good. People who plan to do good, kindness and truth is going to come to them. Those who plan to do evil They're not going to get the kindness and the truth. They're not going to come to the knowledge of God. They're not going to come to true wisdom. They're always going to go astray. Verse 23 says, In all labor there is profit, and mere talk only leads to poverty. That's the contrast, again, between What it is to be prudent, what it is to be thinking, it's get up and and go to work, get up and do the labor, because in all labor there is profit. I think part of what Solomon is getting at here is it doesn't matter if you're king or if you're a plowman, whatever it is, whatever your labor is, whatever your job is, there's benefit to doing it, to getting up every day and doing the work, there is inherent profit to it. And we know that that's true. We know that men who have been looking for a job for a long time, it starts to affect their self-esteem. Women as well. Mm -hmm. At some point, we start feeling like we're less a person because we're not able to get up and be productive. Can't get up and do the work. And uh, I know there was a period of time when I was just out of work and uh, had some money in the bank but was going through it pretty quickly And so I I ended up with a job at Radio Shack. That's right. I took a job where I had to wear a name badge. That's really the only time in my life where that happened, where, hi, welcome to Radio Shack. My name is Jim. And I was making minimum wage, which in those days was not $15 an hour. And if I wanted to make more money than minimum wage, I had to sell enough stuff. So the first stuff that I sold, this is just the way Radio Shack works, the first stuff that I sold just went toward my minimum wage paycheck. So my own selling paid my own minimum wage. And then if I sold above what was minimum wage, then I would make some extra money that week. The problem was I was in a store where nobody ever walked through the door. But the benefit of driving to Franklin every day and working at Radio Shack every day was that at least I was getting up and doing something. I felt productive. I was doing something. When I got that minimum wage paycheck at the end of the week, at least I knew not all the money I was spending was coming out of my bank account. And because nobody ever came into that store, that's where I learned computers. (coughs) Back in those days, Tandy was a big computer company. And Radio Shack, the one I worked in, was full of computers. And I had never worked on a computer before. And so I I started learning computers, reading books, and and practicing on the computers in the stores. Very quickly, I was able then to get a job at a completely different company, which required computer knowledge, which I suddenly now had. And next thing I knew, (coughs) they owned a recording studio, and I ended up being the producer in that studio, which I would never have gotten to had I not just gotten up and gone to work every day for minimum wage at the Radio Shack in Franklin. So God profited me simply because I got up every day and went to work. There is profit to it. Solomon would say in all labor, there is profit. And it's not enough just to talk about it. You can talk about it. Oh, yeah, I'm a good worker. Oh, yeah, I get, yeah I'm, I'm going to work. Oh, yeah, I plan to work. Oh, I I have big plans. I'm, I'm going to invent some stuff. I'm going to get rich quick. I'm going to... I'm going to write that book. I'm someday I've got uh, this new product, which is in a multi-level marketing scheme, and if you'll just sign up with me, I guarantee we're both going to get rich. Talk, just talk about it. Talk about. It. Well, he says here that the end of that is just poverty, because it's only talk, mere talk. It only leads to poverty. So then verse 24, which we've already looked at, the crown of the wise is their riches, but the folly of the fools is foolishness. And then verse 25 we also looked at last week when we were talking about the uh, faithful witness, a true witness, versus somebody who is a false witness. Verse 25 says a truthful witness saves lives, but he who speaks lies is treacherous. Somebody who would speak lies, especially in a court setting, Claiming to be a witness to something they never actually witnessed, somebody who's willing to be a false witness, is treacherous at their core. They're just looking to do damage to somebody. Which takes us to verse 26. The next two verses talk about the fear of the Lord. Here we are again, back at the the big overarching theme of the book of Proverbs, which is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And while Solomon is talking about wisdom and wisdom, he keeps going back to saying that is the fear of the Lord. In the fear, and I don't mean slavish fear, in the reverence of the Lord, there is strong confidence and his children will have refuge. In other words, the children of God, the people who honor God, the children who, who fear God, are going to have confidence in this world. Paul puts it this way, if God be for you, who can be against you? Well, that's a phenomenally confident phrase. When you're saying, what can the world do to me? In the end, nobody can do anything to me that's going to have any lasting effect because God is for me. And so if God is for me and I fear the Lord, then there is a strong confidence built into that. There is a well-being that's just built into that so that the circumstances, the events of this life don't get to you because you know a couple of things. You know, number one, that sovereign God's already got it. You know that God who's in control of everything has planned this for you, so you're going through it. Because this is what God has determined for you. And you know that in the end, God's for you and nobody can be against you. That is tremendous confidence building. So in the fear of the Lord, there is a strong confidence, but not just confidence, there's also comfort. Mm -hmm. Uh, When Israel went into their land, when they were delivered into the land of Canaan, God said that they were going to set aside cities that were called the cities of refuge. And what that meant was, if you were to kill somebody and you didn't do it on purpose, it was a a form of manslaughter, you hadn't planned it that way, but their relative was going to avenge himself on you, if you could get to one of the cities of refuge, then you were safe from the manslayer. The avenger of blood could not get you if you were inside the walls of the city of refuge. And so Solomon picks up that word knowing, being the king of Israel and knowing that there are cities of refuge, hiding places, safe places that you can go. He then says that the children who fear the Lord have God as their refuge, have God as their hiding place. Have God as their protection from from the slayer, from the avenger of blood, from the things in this life that would want to hurt you and damage you. You have a refuge, and it is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord brings strong confidence. His children will have a refuge. Verse 27 says, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. Fountain means water. We're talking about the Middle East here. Clean water, pure water was tough to find. And when you found it, when you found a good fountain, that was a blessing from God. That sustained your life. And so now Solomon draws the parallel between the fear of the Lord, the reverence of the Lord, the honor, the worship of God, and a fountain of water. Living water, I would even go so far as to say, phraseology from the New Testament, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one might avoid the snares of death. That doesn't mean that people who fear the Lord don't ever die. It means there are snares connected with death, and those snares, if they catch you They will drag you down into the pit. They will drag you down into hell. They will drag you into the everlasting darkness and torment of being separated from God. And there is a way to avoid those snares. And the way to avoid them is the fear of God. Fear and reverence of God delivers you to everlasting life and delivers you from the traps of death. Verse 28 has to do with being a king. And since nobody in here has ever been a king, we're going to take Solomon's word for it. He says, in the multitude of people is a king's glory. In other words, if you're a king and there's nobody in your kingdom, you're not much of a king. If you're all by yourself in your room marching around with a crown going, I rule this room, you're really not much of a ruler. But if there is a multitude of people, if there's a great mass of people, and you're the king over all those people, that's what makes a king glorious. And Solomon was, in fact, a very glorious king. Other kings, other queens would travel to come see it and just have a look at the glory of Solomon. But in the dearth of people, in the lack of people... That's his way of saying, if you're marching around your own room with a crown on, saying, I'm the king. A dearth of people is a prince's ruin. You're not a prince. You're not a ruler. You're not a king. If you're not ruling over anybody, if there's nobody with you, you're not a king. Verse 29, we've already looked at it. It says, he who is slow to anger has great understanding. And he who is quick-tempered exalts folly. And then I have to admit that I just love verse 30, at least the first half of it, because it says, A tranquil heart is life to the body. What he's talking about is contentment. If you're at peace in your own heart, then that is good for your whole body because you're not worried, you're not always tense, you're not always wound up because you have a sense of peace, you have a sense of tranquility inside your heart, and that brings life to the body. I think the only place where you're going to get that kind of contentment and tranquility is if you know the Lord, if you have the fear of the Lord, if he is your refuge, if you know that nothing can hurt you on this planet because God has got you, that brings a great deal of peace to you. But passion, says the second half of verse 30, passion, which means in this case, the constant desire. Never being satisfied, never being full with what you've got, the constant desire for more stuff. That kind of passion is rottenness to the bones. So a tranquil heart, a peaceful heart, is life to your body. Never being happy, never being satisfied, constantly wanting more and more is rottenness in your bones. Life in your body or rottenness in your body. Verse 31, we've already looked at, he who oppresses the poor reproaches his maker, but he who is gracious to the needy honors God, his maker. Verse 32, he may just be speaking from the standpoint of being the king, the judge, when he says the wicked is thrust down by his wrongdoing. That's just a fact. If you're caught in your wrongdoing and brought before the judge, you're going to ultimately be thrust down. But the righteous has a refuge, and now he takes it out into ultimate refuge, brings it back to God, and says, the righteous has a refuge when he dies. Mm. A moment ago, he mentioned the snares that are attached to death, and said that fear of the Lord will help you escape those snares. Well, if you know that you're escaping the snares of death that would drag you into the judgment of God then you really have refuge when you die. You're not afraid of death. You're not afraid of what anybody in this life can do to you, and you're not afraid of what happens when you die. So really, you do have a very peaceful and contented heart. You do have a great deal of comfort. You do have satisfaction in this life because you know that God has got it, and you're in a good place. The righteous has a refuge, a safe place, a hiding place when he dies wisdom rests in the heart of the one who has understanding but in the bosom of of fools it is made known we talked about that verse last week and I paralleled it to verse 6 if you look backwards at verse 6 it says a scoffer seeks wisdom and finds none but knowledge is easy to him who has understanding same idea here Wisdom rests in the heart of one who has understanding. It just comes naturally to him. It comes easy to him because he has that wisdom, that fear of the Lord, and he's resting in his heart. But in the bosom, in the heart, in the belly, in the inner parts of a fool, wisdom is something that has to be made known to him. You have to tell it to him. It's not something that's inherent in him. And now again, from the perspective of a king, verse 34, righteousness exalts a nation. A nation is lifted up by its righteousness, but sin is a disgrace to any people. The word any there, of course, is added by the NASB. It's a disgrace to people, any people group, anywhere Any people who are not righteous, their sinfulness is a disgrace to them because righteousness lifts up a nation. At the time that Solomon was king, that was the greatest kingdom in the Middle East at that time. As I mentioned earlier, kings from foreign lands, queens, the queen of Sheba would come to see the glory, the splendor of Solomon. And the reason that he had that kind of splendor and that kind of riches, the reason that he was such a great king, was because God had said to him, I'll give you anything, just what would you like? What's your request? And he said, I want wisdom. I want the wisdom to know how to rule your people well. And as a result of asking for that, God gave him the kind of power, authority, multitude of people, great wealth, so that he was the greatest of kingdoms in the Middle East. So the righteousness that Solomon finds in the law that he is encouraging among the people, that righteousness, in fact, exalted the nation. But his lack of righteousness later in life, his chasing after foreign women, his doing things that God said don't do, was the downfall of the nation to the point where God said, when you die, your son isn't going to have the kind of nation you had. The northern ten tribes were taken away from him completely and uh, the lineage of David continued on in Judah, the southern kingdom, never again to attain to the splendor that Solomon had. So in fact, History, Solomon's own history, demonstrates that genuine righteousness exalts a nation and that lack of righteousness and sin becomes a disgrace to people. That actually happened in his own lifetime. And it's just as true today, by the way, that righteousness exalts any people group, exalts any nation. The king, verse 35, and the end of this evening, the king's kindness, the king's favor is toward a servant who acts wisely. Remember earlier we were talking about how wisdom, knowledge, understanding is riches in and of itself. Well, here he's talking about a servant, a servant to the king. So we're not talking about somebody who had great wealth. We're not talking about somebody who had great power. He's, he's acting as a servant. He's subservient to a king, but the king's goodness, his favor, his kindness is toward the servant who has wisdom, who acts wisely. But the king's anger is toward the servant who acts shamefully. So, in this lifetime, in dealing with people generally, and certainly with any king, I guess I could extend that to employer to anybody who's who's got any kind of authority over you acting in wisdom acting in honesty forthrightness is a way to gain favor but acting foolishly acting self-willed acting in a way that advances yourself over other people solomon says here that is going to be a shameful way to act and that's not going to gain you favor People are not going to look kindly on you for being that way. So again and again and again, over and over and over again, we see all these words that end up being synonymous, and they all come down to fear of the Lord versus lack of fear of the Lord. That results in wisdom and prudence to walk through this life and consider your own ways versus the fool who doesn't consider his own ways. The person who is wise, who's thinking, who's prudent, is also going to be slow to anger because he's considering his own ways. The foolish person is going to be quick-tempered, difficult, and people are going to end up disliking them. So these, these big, huge contrasts, we can see the truth in them. We see it demonstrated every day in our lives, in our work. It's necessary that we, as we walk through our lives, consider our ways so that we are being good representatives of God. And in that way, we are honoring God. We are fearing the Lord. We are being good emissaries of God here on the planet because we're walking in uprightness, in righteousness, and that we are demonstrating that God has been good and gracious to us. Therefore, we are good and gracious to other people. And that is pretty much what we saw tonight. You enjoying the proverb so far? Yes, sir. Isn't there a whole lot of practical wisdom in that? Mm-hmm. Was there even one verse, at least one verse? Was there at least, we already know with Jennifer, so I'm not talking to Jennifer. Was there at least one verse tonight in which you saw yourself? Yeah. There's at least. The folly <laughs> of fools is foolishness. <laughs> the following... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's, this is such encouraging stuff I, I, I don't know why people don't pay more attention to the Proverbs because Solomon was a man who had wisdom directly from God and he's passing that wisdom on to us, it's worth paying attention to questions, comments anything at all alright then say goodbye to the internet congregation goodbye, goodbye.